stewardship, financial responsibility, estate planning, and tithing. What do these things have in common? What does the Bible say? All of this and more on today's episode of the Axe Network broadcast. And we're back for another episode of the Axe Network radio broadcast podcast. And today I've got a special guest with me, Brother Joshua McElhaney. Uh, He is a licensed minister with the United Pentecostal Church, and he is also an estate planner. And uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit today about estate planning, tithing, how all these things fit and are taught in the Word of God. Uh, I think it's something that's very, very important and is something that us as apostolic believers need to pay close attention to in order for us to not only to be able to take care of our families, but in addition to that, to also be able to take care of the kingdom of God. Brother McElhaney, how are you this evening? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Brother, I am blessed more than I deserve. Now, you caught my attention several uh, months ago with a post that you had on social media talking about the three tithes. And uh, I thought that your uh, the way you broke that down and presented it was very, very uh, enlightening. Uh, it was very informative, and it, was, it, it gave me uh, a position to really begin to think about what the Word of God teaches concerning uh, tithing and financial responsibility. Uh, what I'd like for you to do for just a moment is to take us through uh, those three tithes and explain to our listeners how those things relate uh, in our everyday living, uh, how we invest our money, how we sow into the kingdom of God, and how we plan for our future. Yes, sir. Um, first of all, God does a, a terrific job of laying out a, a blueprint and a foundation for us to follow um, in Scripture. And every facet of life that is of importance, uh, we can look to the Bible and God gives us direction and God gives us um, instruction in how to um, live a life and, and, and live our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him. And um, we find this in the Old Testament here with the three different types of tithing. Um, now I'm, I'm not the originator of the subject, but it, it doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, and so diving into it, um, you know, working in ministry and then working as a financial advisor and helping clients daily, um, it's hard to separate the biblical component from the, the, the component we're living in every day. Um, so the first tithe is, is pretty simple. Most of us understand what the first tithe is. Um, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 21 says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenths in Israel for inheritance for their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle, the congregation. That's kind of the framework of the tithing that goes uh, the ministry we paid 10%. Um, and that should be the first check we write when we get paid before we pay any bills, our first 10% should be returned to God. 
Um, and so most of us understand the first times we've heard it preached. We've talked about it ourselves. Um, probably my favorite verse regarding tithes is found in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 8. Um, when you look at that scripture in the King James, it says, Here men that die receive tithes. So that's putting a mortality on it. Mortal men receive the tithes. But there in the offering plate, he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. So I'm actually giving testimony that God's alive by trusting him with my finances and paying tithes. Men may receive it, but I'm not paying men because when I pay my tithes, God receives it. Um, and that's, that's one of my favorite scriptures about tithes. I don't pay tithes to my pastor. I pay my tithes to Christ, and I'm testifying that he's alive. But the, the other two tithes, we don't really spend a lot of time talking on in church. Um, you don't hear it preached about a lot from the pulpit. Um, we may not talk about a lot in, in the sense of tithing. Um, but when we really look at what God is trying to um, get us to understand, uh, the other two tithings, in my opinion, are just as critical and important to the believer's life as the first tithe. So the first tithe is I give 10% to God. But the second tithe serves an entirely different aspect. Um, the Levitical law required that a Jew had to go up to Jerusalem on certain occasions. It was a religious ordinance. Um, and included social provisions and periods of vacation for the family. And so how the head of the household would provide for these vacations and these expenses is by setting aside what the Bible calls a second tithe. We can see that in Deuteronomy chapter number 14. It says that in verse 22, it says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed, that the field bringeth forth year by year, and thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God, excuse me, in the palace, which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thy corn, thy wine, thy oil, the firstlings of thy herds and thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. And if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God has blessed thee, then shalt thou turn it into money, and bind up money in thy hand, and thou shalt go into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat to hear before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thy household, and the Levite that is within thy gates. Thou shalt not forsake him, for he has no part nor inheritance with thee. So long scripture, but essentially what the Bible is saying here is you need to set aside a second tithe, and it's for the tithe of the feast. The second tithe was dedicated um, to the man of God of the household for uh, vacation. So when we look at the way God orchestrated it is biblical precedent for stewardship. First 10% I give to God. The second 10% I give back to myself to make provision for my family. So that's building up an emergency fund so that when something happens, I don't need a credit card. That's um, having a savings account so that when I'm feeling burnt out in ministry and I need to take some time off, um, I have vacation um, savings that allows me to take my family and, and hit the beach for a week so I can rewind and, and, and get my bearings back and, and come back and be effective. Um, so the second tithe is not about you paying God. It's about you paying you. Saving money is not a man-made principle. It's a God-ordained principle. And here's the thing, the leader of the home in scripture 
was expected to set aside another 10% of second tithes into a savings account so that his family can have future provisions, we can say emergency funds, and so that the family can take a vacation. Now, the third tithe, um, it kind of gets lost a little bit. Um, the law explaining the third tithe follows on the heels of the law of the second tithe. And, we, and this is in the same chapter we just read in Deuteronomy 14, um, but it's down the next two verses, verse 28 and 29. It says, At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithes of thine increase the same year, shalt lay it up within thy gate. So we're talking about saving still. And the Levite, because he hath no partner, inherits with thee and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, which are within thy gate. That's an important phrase. Shall come and shall eat and be satisfied. The Lord thy God may bless thee and all the work of thy hand which thou doest. So, the first tithe God instituted was so that we could give back to God, the Levites are taken care of in their service to God. The second tithe was so that we could put money up to have provision so that we can have a savings account, emergency funds, take vacations. We need to pay ourselves. The third tithe was a provision that was made for people who were dependent upon your provision. So it says the fatherless, the specific word, and widow. Um, the biggest issue that a lot of people face is when the breadwinner, the primary breadwinner, the head of the household passes away and the spouse and the children are left destitute because there was no provision that was made. Now, in a perfect world, we would have enough resources saved up so that if we died, our Wife and kids could continue to live and pay the bills and pay off the mortgage, but we don't live in a perfect world. But we have something called life insurance that gives us the ability to buy coverage so that if something happens to me, my family can be taken care of. My kids' college can be paid for. My wife can continue to live in the same house and drive the same car, live at the current lifestyle level. And then we also have disability insurance which if I get injured or sick and don't die, that I still have provision that's made for my wife and for my kids so that we can continue to live and can continue to pay the bills. And then also when I get to retirement, I know provisions have been made so that my wife, my kids, there's legacy involved. Um, and we can get deeper into that conversation a little bit. But the three tithes, my first 10% goes to God. My second 10% comes to me. And then I'm obligated to ha have and make sure that there are provisions in place in the future should anything happen to me, whether I die or whether I'm disabled. I need to make sure biblically that as the head of the house, I'm making provisions for those who are dependent upon me to make provisions. So I do that while I'm healthy enough to do that so that when the time comes and I need the provision, I have access to those resources. That's very, very interesting, uh, the way you break that down, because it seems to be that in the church, we spend a lot of time paying attention to the spiritual well-being of our people. But in fact, we neglect uh, the financial well-being of our people. Uh, I heard a man say one time, he said, uh, I want to have revival, but in order for me to have revival, someone has to write a check. 
So there has to be people with the financial capacity and the ability to be able to fund revival. And it's hard to do that with a church full of people that practice poor stewardship. And so um, there is a very spiritual application to this because we are the church. The propagation of the gospel is dependent upon us. And in addition to seeing after the spiritual welfare of our families, it's our obligation and what seems to be a biblical mandate to take care of our families. Uh, And so uh, one thing that I see as a pastor is I see people that don't have a life insurance policy in place. I see people that don't have any burial insurance. I see people that don't have any money in savings. Uh, You see people that when there's a death in the family, it takes what was already a poor situation and compounds it and makes it even worth at a time when we should not really be worrying about the money aspect, but we should be able to to focus more on the death and the mourning process. But a lot of people are robbed of the ability to mourn because of the stress of the financial weight that's been placed upon their shoulders. Um, and it and it's very uh, concerning uh, for me, and so when I when I looked at your post and and after we had had a, a conversation uh, here earlier today, you know it really uh, weighed on my heart the importance of teaching good stewardship to our people, uh, because it, this is not just a concept or an earthy uh, earthly philosophy, but as you stated before, this this is. This is Bible. This is the plan of God. And so uh, I've never really heard the tithing broke down in a, in a way uh, where it really relates to our family when we talk about the tithe being laid up for the widow and the fatherless. Uh, but in fact, when we pass away, what we have created is a widow and a and, and fatherless. Um uh, and so yep. that money being in place to take care and sustain our family is very, very important. Um, er, in our earlier conversation, we talked about where the Bible states the people perish because of a lack of knowledge. And we look at churches that are left in a financial disarray uh, because of poor money management. Uh, nothing that was done on purpose uh but it was negligent due to the fact that the pastor simply didn't know any better. Um, you had mentioned about a pastor, and, and I know a pastor as well, that had stated that he could not afford to retire, that he knew he yeah. needed to turn his church over to a younger man, but he could not afford to do so because he was so dependent upon those ties. He was so dependent upon that money. Uh, I know a situation of a man now who's pastoring a church full-time. Uh, he worked 60 to 70 hours a week and uh, is pastoring a church, but the former pastor is taking all of the tithe. And he wonders, why is it that he can't have revival? Why is it that um, God is not blessing them 
the way that uh, they ought to be blessed. And I think it's due in part to the breakdown in God's plan. Uh, When Jesus spoke to Peter and said, go fishing and you'll find a coin in the fish's mouth. We as ministry are, are fishers of men and we live by our trade. And there should always be a coin in the fish's mouth. And we we lose that concept and we lose that, uh, the value of that when you have ministers that are not being compensated uh, to no, due to nothing of their own, uh, but because of poor planning by the former pastor, uh, the church being put yeah. in a situation where it cannot afford to, to take care of the new pastor. Um, so we have lack of education. We have poor planning. Um, you talked about the legacy planning, things of that nature. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some things that we can do both as saints and as ministry uh, to take that first step uh, into lining our finances up uh, the way the Bible teaches us to do. Yeah. So, um, I have this conversation pretty much daily with people who, um, whether they're younger or older and finally realizing the necessity of needing to do something, whether it's they've suffered at the hands of COVID and realized just how fragile our economy can be. Um, the first step um, I would tell anybody that's a believer is obviously make sure you're faithful with tithe, number one. Um, outside of that, nothing else is really going to matter. If we stick to the Bible, you know, the whole lump can be cursed by us neglecting that first tithe. Um, so my 90% can be blessed, but my 100% can be cursed if I don't tithe. So that's number one. Number two is to develop a consistent savings habit. Um, when you write that tithe check, write a separate check. Open up a different bank account. Don't leave it in your same checking account. Put it someplace else that you don't have access to it, that you have to go to the bank and make a transfer. Um, save that money. Don't touch it. Get into the habit of saving because what's going to happen is, is um, if you've ever read the book, The Blessed Life, or ever heard uh, Pastor Morris teach on this series called The Blessed Life, um, he talks about something very specific in that series, and that is the greed of the human heart. And when we tithe and when we obey these biblical mandates of stewardship, we actually can break the hold that greed can have on our hearts. So when people don't tithe, typically it's kind of more of a greedy mindset of, of mine and my money, and I work for that. Well, when we don't save, it's for the exact same reason. We're, we're narrow-sighted. We're like the two-year-old who's fighting over the toy, and we're screaming, mine, mine, mine. We can actually defeat the spirit of greed by developing a a, a better stewardship philosophy and savings. So once we have our, our tithing down and once we have our savings down and we're like, okay, now I've, I've put some money away, I've, I've got a cushion. The next thing to do is if you're a W-2 employee is to obviously take advantage of the 401k, um, contribute. The question I always get is how much should I contribute? Do you want to contribute up to the ma- match? Um, get as much free money from the company as you can. And then outside of that, um, it's really going to depend on what your goals are. 
um, a question that we often use is if I walked into your garage and grabbed a hammer and a wrench and you asked, and asked you which one was better, your response would probably, well, what, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to do? Um, any kind of investments or savings vehicles that's for retirement or for the future is going to fall in that same category. What are you really trying to accomplish? Are we trying to save money in taxes? Are we trying to uh, be more efficient? Are we trying to, to, to grow money because we have a shorter time horizon before we retire? I need to get as much money back as I can. Um, so there's a, a myriad of different options that we can choose. But the important thing is going to be developing savings because if you're saving 20% of your income every year, and we just diversify that 20% savings into various vehicles that's going to accomplish different tasks. You're not saving more money. You just, you've already created the, the, the habit of saving. So nothing can be more important than just getting into the habit of saving, developing that second tithe. And then lastly is everyone always wants to talk about how do I grow money or how do I accumulate money? But the most important, uh, piece of a house is the foundation and the foundation of anyone's financial plan is going to be on the insurance, life insurance, disability insurance, making sure that no matter what happens, whatever goals you're trying to accomplish, your family can still reach those goals um, with or without you. And that's kind of the foundation. We build everything on top of that because we want to make sure that we've got all of our bases covered. So it's kind of a, a long response that question but um you know kind of on a simple scale that's kind of where the foundation needs to begin so let's start uh with life insurance uh it's something that everyone can do right now Um, absolutely absolutely and and so we can especially if you're young and healthy Amen. So we can talk about investing in vehicles to invest money in, but yeah. um, but life insurance is a decision that we can make now. This is a decision that can be Absolutely. made today. When it comes Absolutely. to purchasing life insurance, which I guess would be uh, one of the very first steps we should take, how much life insurance do we need? How do we calculate the amount of life insurance that one needs uh, for, say, a traditional family uh, of two or three children and a wife? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, typically, what I find is probably seventy five percent of the clients I talk to who have life insurance don't have enough. Um, uh, I'll talk to. Let's just be hypothetical for a second, but this is kind of similar to a lot of conversations I have. Well, I'll get on the phone with the husband, and he'll be like, "Oh, I've got life insurance. I've got everything taken care of." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. How much life insurance do you have?" And he'll tell me, "I have a hundred thousand dollars of life insurance." And then we'll get to talking, and he owes one hundred and seventy-five thousand on his house, and he owes twenty-four thousand on his car, and he's got five thousand dollars in credit card debt, and he's 32 years old. He's got two kids. There's no college savings. And if he passes away tomorrow, his wife is a stay-at-home mom. He's going to have to find a way to not only make up for his income, but find someone to take care of the kids, um, pay for childcare. So her costs are going to go up now. Also, she's a single. She's going to be following her taxes as single, so she's going to be paying more in taxes. 
Um, there's a lot of factors that come into play. So the first thing is, is understanding exactly how much debt you have. Um, how much credit card debt do you have? How much is your mortgage? How much is your car payment? The last thing you would want is to pass away and your wife have to sell the house that y'all worked so hard to get because there's not enough money to, to pay those bills off. Um, the second thing is, is, do you want to set up a trust for your kids? One thing that we talk to a lot of our clients with that doesn't really get talked about enough is we can actually make provision within the life insurance contract that if you pass away and you have three kids, we can set aside twenty five, fifty, hundred thousand dollars, however much you decide, into a trust so that your kids can go to college on that money. Um, if you're 30, 35 years old, if you're 40, um, how long do you want your, the income to last so that your wife can survive? Do you want 10 years? Do you want 20 years? Do you want 30 years? All these questions are going to be asked and all these things are going to be taken into consideration. And at the end of the day, we're probably going to be looking at anywhere between one and $3 million for the average family um, to make sure that all the, the expenses are covered, child care is covered, college education is covered, and that the spouse doesn't have to go find a job or work two jobs even um, to make up the, the economic impact of their spouse passing away. So the younger, the better. For a young man who is starting a family, his rates on term life insurance are going to be a lot better than a man who purchases life insurance in his 60s or 70s. Absolutely. So the sooner you get a rate locked in for a longer term, the better off you'll be in the long run. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, As you were talking one thing that I was sitting here uh, doing the math on is the average household across America for a small family of two children is fifty to seventy thousand dollars a year in income. Mm-hmm. If you do that times ten years, just on replacement income, you're looking at five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars. Just to replace the income. This is not taking into account the mortgage. This is not taking into account any other accumulated debts. This is not taking into account any revolving accounts, uh, 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 credit cards, car payments, uh, utilities. The list goes on and on and on. So when you talk about one to three million dollars, in all actuality, $1 $1 million is the bare minimum an average yeah. family would need. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. Um, when we talk about – uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say this too. Um, this is a question I get a lot. Um, a, a wife who doesn't work a job and doesn't bring home an income, she's a homemaker, stay-at-home mom, the question I get a lot is, well, why would I need life insurance on my spouse if she's not actually bringing any income? But the economic impact of even a stay-at-home spouse passing away, uh, most people don't realize that if they have kids that are younger and they're working a full-time job. The average cost of, of child care in America is between twenty-five dollars and $30,000 a year. And so just that alone, um, you know, having the ability to provide for your kids in childcare 
to set up the same kind of savings, edu- education savings, um, should your spouse pass away. So I always recommend a minimum of half a million dollars, even on a stay at home spouse who doesn't bring home income, just because of the economic impact that either spouse passing away would bring on the family. Absolutely. That's a very, very good point that you brought out there when we talk about homemakers. Um, we don't look at their value in the way of right. uh, monetary uh, input, but the services that are rendered from a housewife that's taking care and maintaining the home, running the children to and from school, to and from sporting events, to and from church, uh, all of these things are added expenses once she's removed from the equation. And so uh, you're, you're exactly right. I think the value there is uh, severely overlooked. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways uh, for our homemaker wives, um, that's another topic in and of itself. Now, let me ask you this. When it comes to that first step of purchasing life insurance, uh, the two that I'm most familiar with is going to be uh, whole life and term life. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe there's some universal uh, policies and and things of that nature out there as well. Now, when someone wants to purchase life insurance, they're going to have that very elementary choice between do I purchase term or do I purchase uh, whole life? What are your recommendations? What do we need to weigh out when making that decision? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, and again, this is a conversation I have often, um, at the end of the day, what are your goals? Um, and then it's also important to understand that when you compare term life insurance with whole life insurance, that you're not comparing apples to apples. These are two entirely different products that accomplish two entirely different goals. So the easiest way to explain it is term life insurance is like renting a house. You have less cost. Um, it's less expensive. There's no equity. You basically are, are renting life insurance. You're paying a cheap price. Um, the life insurance company is banking on you not dying in that window. And um, let's say you have a 20-year term. And you pay that premium for 20 years. At the end of that 20 years, all the money you paid to it is gone. The coverage you had is gone. And you have to reapply. And now you're older. And um, who knows what your health situation is. On whole life, you're going to pay a lot more for it, but it's like buying a house. There's more cost, um, but you build equity, just like a home. Whole life insurance, it can be considered the foundation of of a financial plan from the aspect of it's forcing you to save money, but giving you life insurance for the rest of your life. So there's a, a common phrase that's used a lot um, that says you should just buy term insurance and invest the rest. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that terminology because uh, of, the, of the, the impact that a whole life insurance policy can have on an overall financial plan. Um, we've seen people use it as supplementary income, the cash value that builds in the plan, the equity I was talking about. 
use it to supplement their investment accounts during down market seasons. Um, there's living benefits with that cash. I mean, there's just so many different options that could come in. So um, what I typically recommend is if you're young and you're starting out, buy a cheap term policy because what we'll do later is once you start making more money and you get other things in place, we can convert the term policy into a permanent policy. And then we can really sit down and show you exactly how this will work to help maximize what it is you're trying to do. So it's not an investment vehicle. Um, it's different than term insurance, but there's an investment side to it. There's a saving side. Um, and then there's a life insurance that's guaranteed for the rest of your life. Um, so like, for instance, we have um, these policies for kids. They get a great health rating. It accomplishes the same goals. Um, it builds that equity, that cash um, that can help your children set up the legacy for their future and help them when they turn 18 or 21 to begin to have that framework for their plan in place. They take over. They can add more coverage without having to take a medical exam. So there's so many benefits that are involved um, when you talk about whole life versus term. But term is going to be the cheaper option. Whole life is going to be more expensive. But it's really going to come down to what are you really trying to accomplish? Um, so, like I said, if we're, if we're talking to a young family that's starting out, maybe money is tight, we're going to talk about term. It's cheaper. We're going to give you the coverage you need. We've got a window now to do some other things, save some money, build our emergency fund. And then we can talk about converting it later to accomplish um, some more specific goals that we have in mind. Now, the one thing that we talk about in the church is the need to have a pastor the need to have spiritual accountability yeah. one thing we do not talk about in the church is the need to have a financial planner or a financial advisor in our life hello yeah I think that it's important for people to find somebody that can give them good advice, that can also provide encouragement in making these tough financial decisions. How important Absolutely. is it for a family to find a financial advisor and to make that individual a voice in their life? Um, we, we don't hear this. We, we don't hear of this. No, we don't. We, we, hear about, we, we hear about very wealthy people having financial advisors that advise right. them on their wealth. But very seldom do right. you hear about middle-income America having financial advisors. Is, yeah. it, is yeah. it possible that maybe we would be a lot better off financially if we had a voice like that in our life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's probably the biggest myth around financial advisors or financial planners is that we only exist for the wealthy people. Um, the majority of our clients are not super wealthy people. Um, I, I just had a conversation with a young couple and um, you know, one of the things that came up was just the the anxiety of going through this COVID season, being furloughed, 
um, you know, seeing your investments drop when the economy tanked, um, you know, having debt, not knowing what to do in the future, um, you know, all these different things that, that we all think about, we all wonder about, like, am I doing enough? Am I saving enough money? And the, the one component that people don't take into consideration is we're not just sitting down to sell you some products. We're looking to build lifelong relationships. We're going to walk with you through life. We're going to, to make decisions that's going to help your family. Um, and, and the one thing that, that most people struggle with when it comes to finances is their emotions. We're, we're human. We have fears. We have insecurities. Uh, we make emotional decisions. And it's not always the right decisions when our emotions get involved. And having you know, the same thing with the pastor. When, we're, when we've got things going on in life and we get emotionally involved and we start making decisions based on our emotions and we can sit down with our pastor and he can give us some clarity and talk to us and there's that resolute voice that's not catering to emotions but just speaking the truth and love. Your financial advisor can do the same thing. He can sit down and be that voice of reason, give you that peace of mind, knowing that you have someone in your corner who's handling this stuff for you, who's making sure that your family's taken care of, who's making sure that you can reach every goal you want to reach, whether it's taking a dream vacation or um, saving up for that dream home. Um, you know, all of these things, all these goals that are specific to you and your family, there's somebody who's, who's a professional who's making sure that your family is maximizing everything that you're doing to reach every goal you have. And also knowing that you have somebody you, tr you trust you can call at any time of the day and bounce ideas off of, um, get that reassuring voice, have that calming voice that, that lets you know that, hey, we're in this together. You're not in this by yourself. Um, it can really give you a peace of mind that a lot of people take for granted when it comes to their finances. So I think the first rebuttal that one would offer up is this statement. I can't afford to have a financial advisor. I can't afford to have a financial planner in my life. When we talk about the cost associated with a financial advisor or a financial planner, what kind of cost are we talking? How is a financial advisor uh, compensated for the work that they do uh, because I think this is going to help to clear up a lot of uh, hesitation in a lot of people's minds about the need to have yeah. a financial planner. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a, again, it's a question I get asked every meeting I have. Um, so there are different types of advisors out there and they all have different types of of ways to get paid. Some of them were paid on fee. Um, for, you know, for me, um, my clients never directly pay me. So I get paid 100% commission through insurance and investment companies. Um, what that means is, is that we can sit down and we can analyze your current landscape and it's not going to cost you anything except your time and your effort to make sure that you've got everything situated. Um, so when people say I can't afford it, um, 
usually it's kind of their way of saying they don't want to have to face the reality because um, humans have this thing where as long as we don't acknowledge there's a problem, um, we feel pretty good about it. Uh, that's just, we, we're that way about everything. Um, but what we do is psychologically, we kind of flip the problem and the solution. And we think the problem is X, Y, or Z, or the solution is X, Y, Z. And the reality is, is when we meet with clients, the problem is you don't have enough money and savings. The problem is you don't have enough invested for retirement. The problem is you don't have enough insurance. And now help, let us help you get the solution to help you meet your goals. So the only thing it's going to cost is your time and your effort and then allow and then trusting us enough to take the recommendations that we offer you um, to help your family really reach your goals. So I think a lot of people uh, have uh, the misconception that uh, a financial planner or a financial advisor uh, is, is like an investment manager uh, where an investment manager is being paid a, a fee or a sum of money right. to invest or to manage a portfolio, where on the other hand, yeah. a financial planner or a financial advisor is someone who's offering you product and services, and you're compensated yeah. based on the product or services that you're selling to your client. So, yeah. so, so in fact, so there. So, so in essence. Um, there is no reason why anyone should not have a financial planner in their life. Right. Yeah. There's everyone should at least sit down and have a conversation. Everyone should, regardless of how much income you make, regardless of your landscape. Um, everyone should sit down and have a conversation with an advisor that they can trust. Um, because it's not going to cost you anything to sit down and have a conversation. And then today with the world, the, the, the way the world is, I can meet anyone in the U.S. over a Zoom meeting. And, um, and so there's really no excuses for not taking the time and sitting down and having those conversations. Just making sure that, hey, am I doing enough? That's the question we should be asking. Am I doing enough? Now, the one thing that you hear from time to time, depending on who you're talking to. Sometimes you will hear uh, things like never invest in insurance. It's a poor investment. And you'll have uh, investment uh, people that will tell you invest in stocks, bonds, annuities, hedge funds, things of this nature. Now, talk to us about um, the benefits and the downsides to investing through insurance. Um, so, again, I don't think there's one tool that's superior to another tool because I think they all work together. Um, when we're talking about you know, insurance versus investments, um, I think one of the things that that makes what I do unique is that having the ability to, to utilize both sides gives us um, a more well-rounded approach to the overall 
strategy that we're trying to implement. So whether it's so we're using the um, concept of diversica- uh, diversification. Yeah. So we want to. I mean, we're always looking to diversify. You know, a couple of ways we want to diversify from a tax standpoint, from a market standpoint, from a liquidity standpoint. Um, we want to make sure that you have cash that's available, you know, liquid assets that you can quickly get if an emergency were to come up. Um, you know that we have money in the stock market, money out of the stock market, you know, safe dollar savings accounts. We use everything because we want to have a, a very well-rounded, diversified approach because we want to be as predictable as possible because we're talking about your future here. We want to be able to say, hey, in 20, 30 years, this is where we're headed. And if we do this, this, and this, this is what it will look like when we get there. And so being able to, to understand that um, you know, all of these resources that are in the world are available to me, depending on what my goals are, depending on what my situation is. I may meet with a client who does all one side and meet with another client who does all the other side. And then the third client does a mixture of both. Um, it's really going to come down to who, who it is, what they're, what they're trying to accomplish, and what is the best strategy overall to use it. And typically, it's going to be a combination of both. I've heard you mention uh, several times in this conversation about whatever goals it is that one is trying to accomplish. I think the problem many times for people is they simply don't know what it is they're trying to accomplish. They don't know what the end game is supposed to be or what it should look like. Um, I think for a lot of people, they have a hard time getting from Sunday to Saturday and thinking out three, five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years down the road is inconceivable for a lot of people. And so, uh, in a lot of ways, it can be very overwhelming for a lot of people. And that's why I mentioned the first step being life insurance. Um, that that's a that's a very small step, but a very important step. Now, when we talk about uh, making investments, uh, we talk about stocks, bonds, annuities, all these different things. Um, we're talking about building wealth as opposed to getting rich. Now, in a lot of people's mind, when we talk about building wealth, the first thing they think is rich. But being rich and having wealth are not synonymous. These are not really interchangeable terms. Um, And so one thing a family needs to do, and one thing I think the Bible teaches is the concept of building wealth, of good stewardship that would uh, take what God has given us. Uh, we, we can talk about the story of the man with five talents, the man with two talents, and the man with one talent. Um, I don't believe the Bible teaches uh, that we should take an oath of poverty, but I believe that God wants his people to be blessed for the sustainability of the church to further the gospel. And so we, we should be a blessed people. 
God's people should not have to live hand to mouth. So when we talk about the concept of building wealth and doing it from a biblical standpoint, doing it in in an ethical manner, talk to us for just a few moments about the concept of a middle-class family building wealth or a minister, a pastor in a church of 50 or 100 people building wealth. Um, Talk to our, our listeners about that for a moment. Yeah, so the concept of, of building wealth is, is very much a biblical concept. I mean, Proverbs thirteen twenty two says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's legacy. That's creating, um, changing the generational arc of your family. Um, you know, there's, you know, building wealth is, is an essential component to um, trying to get to the point where we can finally retire and enjoy the life we want. Um, an illustration that I often use is there's a lot of people out there that'll tell you how to climb, climb Mount Everest. Um, it takes a lot of work. There's a lot of things you have to do. Um, but when you research all the people who have climbed Mount Everest, most of the people die not on the way up the mountain, but on the way down. So accumulating enough wealth to, to survive your retirement age, um, people are living longer, they're retiring sooner. Um, it's going to require a lot more wealth to um, make sure that not only are you going to be able to have the retirement you want, but are you going to be able to leave a legacy behind for your kids? And this is another reason why life insurance is so important. Um, sometimes the only way to leave a legacy for the next generation is through life insurance, especially if you're from a, um, a low class to middle class, working class family. Um, chances are you won't have the ability to save up enough money to not only enjoy your retirement, but leave money behind for your kids and for your grandkids. And life insurance affords you that opportunity to be able to leave behind that legacy. Um, so wealth is very much a, a biblical um, model that God wants us to um, not just store up enough money so that we can, you know, have enough pennies to make it through the end of the week or through the end of retirement. But I believe it's a, a biblical pattern. We see it with Abraham. Um, he was blessed. He had an abundance of wealth, and his wealth was allowing him to bless the rest of the world. I think God wants his people to be in a position that we can be a blessing to other people. Our wealth should enable us to further the gospel. When we look at Jesus's message, um, his entire ministry was kind of built on on two subjects that he talked about over and over and over again. The most talked about subject he talked about was the kingdom of God, and that should be our primary mission. But the second thing he talked about more than anything else was money. Not, uh, Not being greedy, having the proper stewardship, and then allowing ourselves to be a blessing. And the only way we can be a blessing is by accumulating enough wealth to allow us to do the things we need to do for our own families and and still be a blessing to the church, to the ministry, to revival, like you talked about earlier. Um, so wealth is, is very much a, a very important subject. And you're right, it's not the same thing as being rich. Um, it's doing everything you can to, to, to build that that legacy that you want to leave behind 
if your pastor is building that legacy so that you can retire at an age where you can still you know, be the biggest cheerleader for the new pastor that comes in while not strapping the church, um, having those things available to you um, to be able to enjoy your life and, and pursue other passions and ministry once you retire from pastoring, uh, whatever they may be, having the wealth to do that will make that um, possible for you. For just a moment, because I know the the question is going to run through someone's mind. When it comes to a pastor, someone in ministry, making investments or investing uh, on behalf of the church or the future, in some circles that can be a very controversial topic. Is there a biblical precedent or a biblical concept for making investments on behalf of the local church? And the other side of that question is this. How important is it for us to include the church into our legacy planning? And what I mean by that is this. Many times you see churches that do very, very well when they have some wealthy members in that church. And you'll see where a wealthy member will pass away. And then all of the sudden, that church that was accustomed to operating on those finances, they've now lost that. And I've seen a lot of churches that would build nice churches, and they have the tithe in the offerings there, but when that member passes away, all of a sudden that the finances of that church changes drastically. Um, is that something we should also consider? How we continue uh, in that legacy planning? How we continue to even help the church even after one has passed away? Uh, you know, I, I think that's something that it's severely neglected. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I absolutely think that the church and the pastor can work together um, in several ways. They can work together to help the pastor prepare for his own retirement, um, you know, through, you know, permanent life insurance policies, deferred compensation plans, different things like that. Um, I also think they could work together for legacy planning around the church itself. Um, you know, the pastor is in a unique position, uh, much like a business owner, in that, um, there are things that they can run through the church, the things that the church can run, um, even for other staff members in the church. That let's say this, you know, this is going off a little, little bit off topic, but let's just say there's a church that um, has a pastor who decides he's going to leave early, or you know, having trouble keeping a pastor around, or they have an assistant pastor that. Is, is very vital to the success of the church. There are provisions that the church can make that if the, let's say the assistant pastor were to leave and take on another church, that the church has the resources to be able to hire somebody else and bring them in um, without touching the finances of the church. There's um, products that we can use and, and, and strategies we can implement to um, enable the church to survive the loss of a key assistant pastor. Um, there's things that we can institute in the church that will 
allow the pastor to want to stay because we have a 10-year window on a, an investment account that's going to go towards his retirement if he stays longer than 10 or 15 years. And if he doesn't, the church keeps the money, and now that's their insurance um, to bring in another guy and get him to stay longer. Um, there are things that the church can implement, institute, that allow them to, um, you know, grow money and generate money. Um, it's going to all come down to how the, the church finances are structured, how much the church and the pastor are willing to work together to accomplish these goals, both for the benefit of the pastor and the benefit of the church. Um, but there are so many things that we can, can do that most pastors are unaware of that um, would really be beneficial for both the church and the pastor when we talk about long-term legacy planning. Amen. You know, while you were talking, I was sitting here thinking about the loss that is incurred when a minister loses their spouse, when the first lady of the church passes away. Are there products and things in place? Uh, are there things within the realm of insurance that can be offered uh, where, th where the church becomes a beneficiary? Uh, to the passing of 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 a pastor or uh, the the first lady, uh, a lot of times churches find themselves in very uh, bad positions when when they lose a member of their staff or or, or whatever a member of their leadership. Um, how often do you see churches that prepare for these things where they have products in place? Um, life insurance policies, things of that nature, uh, on the leadership team? Uh, is that something that you um, see a good bit, or is it, uh, is, is it something I that, don't see it enough. Okay. So why don't you talk to I, us I about that for, for just a moment? Uh, for instance, uh, my, the church that I pastor, uh, my wife is the principal of our church school. Uh, in addition to that, um, she runs uh, the drug and alcohol uh, division of the church. Um, she sees and, and, and maintains and makes sure that, you know, all the cleaning and, and all the maintenance in the building is taken care of. Um, she's a, a very valuable resource. If we had to replace my wife in the church, we, we would need to hire four people. Yeah. Um, how, how does the church protect themselves in a situation like that? Yeah, so the um, the church could could ideally have a policy, um, and whoever the policy is on could name the church or the call it charitable charitable organization as the beneficiary. Um, now, depending on what kind of policy it is, how it's set up, there could be um, some tax issues we'd have to solve. But for the most part. Um, you know, we could see a situation where there's an insurance policy where the family gets um, a payout and another policy where the church receives that payout to be able to um, have the resources to bring somebody in to take the place of the person um, who may have passed away. You know, one of the things that's really hard for people in ministry is, um, you know, we don't have 401ks. We don't have benefit packages from our employers um, and so you know one of the things that churches can do for the entire staff 
whether you have a Sunday school director or a music director, associate pastor, an outreach director, is implement some some benefits like group benefits of life insurance and disability insurance. Um, you know, creating you know deferred compensation plans for key staff members that you want to reward for their service to the church by helping them set up money for the future. There's so many different things that the churches can utilize to benefit the people that are really driving the, the entire ministry and helping the church be successful and dedicating their lives to the church. It doesn't always have to be, um, you know, a free will offering, if you will. There are things that we can do to um, ensure the church and ensure the families of those who serve and, 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 and really uh, take advantage of some of the, the things that are out there. Um, so that when something does happen or somebody does even leave and take another position at another church, the church is able to suffer the loss and have the resources to be able to bring somebody in from the outside um, to be able to, to, to pick up the slack and carry the load. Last question. You see that a lot of ministry opt out of social security withholding and what they do is they spend that money and they never reinvest that money into a vehicle that will sustain them. Talk to us for just a moment about ministry that opts out of social security. What are the positives and what are the negatives to that decision? And what is the appropriate response for ministry concerning that? Yeah, so I'm not extremely concerned with someone who opts out of Social Security as long as they're utilizing other resources to prepare for their retirement. Um, you know, the same principle applies to the buy term and invest the difference philosophy. Most people who buy term never invest the difference, they spend the difference. And most of the people who opt out of Social Security, as you said, spend the money that they would be paying in Social Security. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to diligence and discipline. Am I being diligent about my future? Am I being disciplined about saving the money that's necessary to save? Um, so, I mean, we can get into a conversation of how much Social Security will be there um, and, and, and all that. But really, it's going to come down to, as a minister, it's easy to, to be so short-sighted in working for God and trying to win souls and trying to build the church and, and giving everything we have back to the church um, that we neglect to do the things that are required to make sure that our families are taken care of. At the end of the day, the hierarchy has to remain the same. God has to be first in my life. My family has to be second. And then the church third. So my relationship with God is number one. I'm going to make sure that God's first in everything I do. But I can't allow the church to take priority over my family because now I'm out of order. And I had this conversation with a pastor several months ago who was, I think he was paying like almost 30% offerings on top of his tithe. And 
he had no insurance, no savings, and, and he, he, he was raised to believe that you just give everything you have back to the church. And while I appreciate, you know, the, the mindset and, and the spirit that he had, you know, I, I sat him down and said, hey, I'm going to talk to you not as a minister. I'm going to talk to you as a financial advisor for a second. Um, and I explained to him, you know, how dangerous it was for him to continue to live that way for his wife and his children. And then I said, now let me talk to you as a minister. I said, you have a responsibility to make sure that your family is taken care of. You said you have no life insurance, you have no savings account, you have no retirement plan. And if anything happens to you, your wife and your three kids are going to be left with all the bills. The church is not going to be able to support them. They're going to be on the streets. The church is going to find a new pastor. And all that money and resources that you invested in the church, yeah, God's going to take care of them and God's going to bless them. But do you really want to see them struggle like that? But you need to reprioritize your family first. Don't get so caught up in, in trying to, to prove that you can grow a church on your own. It's not your church to grow. It's God's church. You need to take care of your family. You do what you can with what God gave you. You live by the principle of those three ties. You pay God first. You pay yourself second. You set up provisions for the future. And God's going to bless that. And God's going to help you raise that church. God's going to help you have revival. But you neglecting to take care of your family, God's not just going to show up when you pass away and say, here's a check for a million dollars that you didn't ever set up for your family. I've personally seen it. I've seen, I pastored um, ex-pastor's wives who were widowed, whose husbands didn't prepare, who had no life insurance. Wonderful women of God um, who had no money. They were poor. You know, they were still working jobs, trying to make ends meet, um, you know, well into their 70s. It's just not a situation you want your family to be in. And we have the ability and the resources available to us to prepare and to build the framework so that our families are taken care of and our futures are secure. And we're not 75 years old and preaching because we have to. We're 75 and we're preaching because we want to and we love God and we love the message. Uh, we're not handcuffing churches' finances because we didn't prepare and a young man is having to work two jobs to pay for his family's bills and trying to pastor a church, you know, we can, we can join in unison, generation to generation. I think one of the things that makes the apostolic church so powerful is, is apostolic succession. When the previous generation and the next generation work together and walk hand in hand, um, but nothing can divide that joint, that union between the former pastor and the new pastor like money can. And when we don't prepare and we don't plan, we're giving the devil access to a tool that can, that can divide the ministry, that can bring in unnecessary baggage into a church and really halt and hinder what God is trying to do through the church. Um, so when we talk about money and we talk about planning and we talk about legacy, it's so much bigger than just um, being able to tell people, oh, yeah, i got a cool financial plan. I'm set up for retirement so many factors that play a part into this, especially from a ministry perspective, that um, we're doing ourselves a disservice by not just sitting down and having this conversation. Powerful. Very, very, very powerful, what you just st stated. Before I let you go, something that crossed my mind while you were talking that we have failed to mention, and that's 
disability insurance. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about a man that suffered a major stroke in the prime of his ministry. No ability to be able to continue to provide for his family. Life insurance does him yeah. no good because he's not dead. No, exactly right. So talk to us for just a moment. And I think this is something that even myself has neglected to do, and that is purchase disability insurance. Talk to us about disability insurance. Tell us about the benefits and the importance of disability insurance and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So according to Dave Ramsey, disability insurance is the most important insurance you can purchase. Um, And the reason is, is because when we look at, let's just say insurance in general, let's say we buy a home, costs $150,000. We buy homeowner's insurance on the home. We're going to keep that insurance even when we pay the home off. And yet the probability of, filing a claim on a homeowner's insurance is like one in 2000 or something like that. We get car insurance on our car. Um, even if the car is paid off, we're going to have some kind of insurance. Uh, and the probability is of having a wreck and, and filing a claim on that is about one in 800. Um, we have life insurance. Um, the probability of us dying before the age of 65, especially if you're a male, is one in eight. But our most valuable asset is our ability to make money, our ability to go to work every day. And yet we have a one in three chance of becoming disabled. One in three. Lord have mercy. With the average disability lasting about two years. Just think of the economic fallout. If something were to happen, if you were to get sick or injured um, and unable to work for just two years even, or for, you know, the rest of your life. Having a disability policy allows you to continue to live your life. Now, a lot of people have disabilities through their employer, um, and it'll pay about 60% of their income. Then after taxes, you're looking at about 48% um, is what you get to keep. Um, When you get a a disability policy, um, you know, through us or something like that, then um, we're going to try to get you to close to 100% as possible. Um, we can supplement your current uh, disability plan with more coverage. We can give you a completely isolated standalone policy. Um, what's important to understand is most people think disability is being in terms of, of a wheelchair. Um, but any sickness or injury that prevents you from doing your job, there's different classifications. Um, there's any occupation disability, which... Um, will pay you a short amount of time, but if you're able to get a job flipping burgers, it's not going to pay you anymore. There's a, a true occupation, which means if you can't do the job that you were hired to do any longer. So it's important to understand what type of disability policy you have, um, what kind of company that you're getting it with. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you look at the statistics of, of how high of a probability we have of being disabled, one in three people getting disabled, um, you know, it's pretty cool. I can have all the insurance in the world that I want and all the investment accounts I want. But if something happens to me and I'm disabled, um, I'm going to have to live on all of those investment accounts. I'm no longer contributing. I'm not growing money. I'm taking money out. I don't know how long I can survive on that. 
Um, the insurance policies are going to do nothing for me in the event of a disability. Um, I need to make sure that no matter what happens, if something happens to me and I die, my family's taken care of. If something happens to me and I'm still alive, but I'm able to work, I still know my family's taken care of. In your opinion, considering the level of stress that a full-time pastor is under, the heart attacks, the stroke, the lack of sleep, all of these things, how important is it for a pastor to have disability insurance? I think it's critical. Um, I know of a prominent evangelist who had um, a throat issue that required surgery, and he was unable to talk for six months. Couldn't work, couldn't preach, couldn't generate an income. There's so many different things that could happen. And unfortunately, what typically happens in those situations is is the pastor stays on staff, the church continues to pay a salary, but they can't afford to bring anyone in to preach. So the church may suffer or dwindle, whereas if the pastor has a disability policy in place, and let's say something like that happens, um, he's got revenue coming in. The church now has the ability to bring in somebody, bring in an evangelist for a, you know, a year if they need to, or, or bring in a, a, an interim pastor during that time where the pastor can recover and the church is not burdened down. The family is not stressed out. I mean, I've been, I've, I've pastored before. I understand, um, you know, living on the tithe and I can imagine nothing that would be more stressful than not just being disabled, but knowing that I'm taking the money from the church. I'm not able to do my job and the church can't bring anybody in. So now the church is dying. Like we're adding stress on top of stress on top of stress when if we would have just had a disability policy in place, we could recover from the heart attack. We can recover from the stroke. Um, you know, we can recover from throat surgery. If something happens and, and you're going to be unable to pastor again, and you can move to the role of a bishop or a senior pastor and have the resources to hire somebody else to come in that you can mentor from a, a relational aspect who can now help the church fulfill the vision that God has given you. There's so many things that can happen. Um, and so it, it's crucial for people in ministry to make sure that we, and let's face it, most people, a lot of people in ministry, when we start getting older, our health goes, um, you know, we're, we're not as active as we need to be. Uh, and there's a lot of things that can creep up when we get older that can really um, bring us down physically and not having stuff in place um, is just adding to the disaster that um, could come upon the church if something were to happen to us. You know, you mentioned it, and I'll reiterate. It's easier to come back and to recover from an ailment than it is to recover from financial calamity. Absolutely. Once the financial damage is done, it's done. It's almost impossible Absolutely. to recover. And uh, 
the more we, we talk about this. We could go on and on and on. But, uh, folks, if you're out there listening, it's very important. Uh, he said critical. It is critical that you have disability insurance. It's critical that you invest in life insurance for your family. It's critical that you consider these things. It's really boiled down to this. It's not a matter of if you can afford to make these decisions. It's a matter of can you afford not to. That's really what it boils down to at the end of the day. That's right. Brother McElhaney, we appreciate you taking time to uh, invest your knowledge into our listeners here this evening. Um, I want you to give your contact information. Now, the products and the services that you offer, they are nationwide. You can deal with anyone from coast to coast, north to south. Amen. So why don't you go ahead and give your contact information, uh, your your email, your web address, uh, uh, and any phone numbers, any way that our listeners can reach out to you. Uh, Give them the name of your company and and all of that. Yeah, so um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is um, on my cell phone. My cell phone number is area code 903-330-5138. It's 903-330-5138. And then my email address, um, it's my name, Joshua dot McElhaney for those listening it's M-C-E-L-H-A-N-E-Y at N the letter N M N as in Nancy M as in monkey dot com and then my website is um, Joshua McElhaney dot N-M dot com and the N-M stands for Northwestern Mutual Amen. So, folks, there you have it. The long and the short of it. These are things that we need to make sure that we address. In addition to our spiritual welfare, we need to look at our finances. We need to look at at all of these things because it is biblical. It is biblical. Uh, These are not things that, that are simply carnal. Uh, but we have an obligation and a duty to make sure that we handle our finances appropriately. Uh, We want to thank you again, brother. This has been very, very eye-opening for even myself. Uh, At a later date, I'd like to have you back. I'd like to have your your wife on the show as well. Um, In addition to our finances, another very, very important thing, that we need to consider, ladies and gentlemen, is our health. Not just our spiritual health, but our physical and mental health. And uh, I believe, uh, brother, you've been on a journey uh, to make that transformation into a healthier lifestyle. And I believe your your wife, uh, uh, is she a trainer or does she deal with people on that level or um, yeah, she's a she's actually a certified personal trainer and a nutritionist. 
Amen. Amen. So, so these are also things, because again, even if our finances are in order and our spiritual life is intact, um, it's hard to really enjoy any of those things if we live with poor health conditions. And so I think uh, taking care of ourselves physically and mentally uh, helps to add value to our life. Uh, I think it adds value to the kingdom of God. It's hard to do the work in the kingdom if you're not healthy. Amen. And so I think that's very, very important. So we'd love to have you and your wife back on to talk about uh, health and wellness as well. God bless you, listeners. Amen. Uh, Until we meet again at a later date, God bless you.